Hey, we are back. Welcome to Rankable episode 17. Um, this Today's episode is how to build a successful franchise. I'm your host as always, Jared Thomas, Senior Account Executive by Pull Rank. And today I'm super excited. You can see I'm giddy already, just trying to get through it. But uh, I actually have a special guest who somebody has been following for quite some time. I've been a fan of his for quite some time. Um, what he's been doing really much is he's CEO of 16 Handles. He's an expert marketer. He's an investor. Um, you know, he's been able to grow his chain since 28 to 20, uh, 2008, would actually be the first frozen yogurt chain in New York City. And now he's grown into over 40 locations and even gone internationally. So I would like to introduce my guest, founder and CEO of 16 Handles, Solomon Choi. How, how are you? Good, sir. Thank you for joining. Thanks for having me, Jared. Thank you for the wonderful introduction. Happy to be here. And, uh, you know, granted, it's got to be virtual, but, you know, Good spirits, good smiles, good people. Let's have a good conversation today. That's it, man. I really appreciate it. our green room conversation was just amazing, and I'd love to to hear from you just to start it off. You know, we'd love to if you could share your story about your background in terms of marketing and your story and how you've transitioned and moved over to New York City to start your business, and then we'll go from there. Sure, sounds good. Um, so, kind of my 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 background is I grew up in Southern California, um, LA specifically. My father was a multi-unit franchise operator of a, a successful Japanese franchise um, back then. And so I got to see it. I cut my teeth into the business um, probably three years after I graduated um, from, from college. It mm -hmm. was a turnaround situation with one of his restaurants. Um, it was the largest um, seafood and, and Japanese restaurant in all of North America, 23,000 square feet, seating for 500. I mean, it was a massive, wow. massive restaurant. And I was like 25 years old going in there. And, uh, and he's like, I need help. You know, he goes, I need help with marketing. I just need help overall. He had owned it for seven years. So by no means, um, you know, was it something new, but a new challenge. And so um, my background was I, I studied marketing, um, specifically consumer behavior and branding were my two favorite uh, courses um, during undergrad. I just loved the uh, kind of, I guess the psychology behind it is, you know, um, you know, take for instance, like, how could that same shirt, which is made out of the same factory in Bangladesh or Vietnam, be worth something that's different if it has a side profile of a crocodile, a guy on a horse with the polo mat, uh, no, nothing at all. Same exact material, right? Same origination, but it means something different. And what it is, is I believe that brands create a positive emotional connection. And when you have that with the guest, that's almost priceless. I mean, obviously there's a limit, but priceless in the yeah. sense that um, you're no longer really doing selling. They just want more and more of it, right? Because it makes them feel yeah. good. And so um, in having studied that, I was just like, okay, how do I now apply this to food? Because if I'm going this route of of restaurants, yeah. um, that's also something where you can either make a very positive emotional connection, right? You can, you remember the times where you've had birthdays or anniversaries yeah. or certain celebrations and those things stick with you, you know, forever. Um, oh, really? You probably remember the dish. And so you could have something like that, or it could be something that's easily forgettable where it's just like, yeah, like I don't even remember what I ate. I don't remember if it was good. And so to me, again, it could be the same exact piece mm -hmm. of steak or a sandwich or a set, whatever it is, but how the overall experience is, did they make a positive emotional connection or not? And that's really the business's challenge. And so in, in doing that and more of that, I joined a, host, a startup hospitality group after I turned my father's restaurant around. We sold it for a nice profit. Mm -hmm. um, and in this restaurant group, I got to learn a few different things. One, I got to learn what it was like to actually open up a restaurant, right? So I'd gone in and managed one, um, mm -hmm. operated in one, done marketing for one. But here I was where from scratch in dealing with contractors, landlord. In this case, it was a very large landlord. It was one of the largest mall developers because uh, we were inside of a, an actual mall. 
And so I'm like all that learning, right? The hiring a brand new team, um, putting yeah. together standard operating procedures, like everything from scratch. And granted, I didn't do it all wow. by myself, but I was the managing partner. I was the day-to-day -day managing partner yeah. of this new restaurant concept. Um, and tons of learning there. After that, I transitioned into becoming the director of franchise development for a Texas-based gelato franchise that my CEO at the time bought the rights for Southern California. So I learned about franchising on now the corporate side, right? And working for my father, I got to see what it was like being the franchisee, right? Mm. And the, you know, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And then now I got to see it on the other side. This is when you're the franchisor, this is what it's like. And so yeah. I got paid to do that, right? And so how amazing is it that I'm learning these skills as I'm being paid, transitioning through my career in these different roles within food service mm -hmm. and hospitality. And then the opportunity came where I got to branch off on my own because um, I realized at that time, this was like 2006, I was like, hey, like I'm, I'm, I'm responsible for trying to sell these gelato franchises, but there's this company called Pinkberry that kind of took uh, the US yeah. by storm. <laughs> Everyone wants frozen yogurt and froyo. And, and I'm trying to sell gelato. I'm, I'm selling the wrong product. I go, it's not a matter of me being a bad salesman. I go, but I'm selling an inferior product that people want the other one. And so yeah. um, family friend of ours, they still operate today. The very first self-serve pay-by-weight frozen yogurt shop. It's in Costa Mesa, California called America's Cup Yogurt. Uh, Mr. and Mrs. Song, if you get a chance to hear this, you know, shout wow. out to you guys for teaching me. But really what I did was I, I put in my dues. When I saw that concept, I wanted to learn it and I wanted to build my model and brand around that operating model. I was like, I love this. This is so amazing. Again, having come off of working for my father in a buffet setting, I knew people like choices and I knew they like personalization, customization. But yeah. what I hated about the buffet model, which was one price, right? So if you and I go in and you eat two plates, and I eat like six plates of the most expensive sushi. We pay the same price. They lost money on me. Maybe they made money on you. Yeah. Like too many uncontrollable variables, right? And so I hated that because I'm like, our food cost was always very high. It was either higher, higher. It was never low. Yeah. Um, and it was a massive operation to operate with. Like I had a hundred employees on payroll for that one restaurant. I was just like, this is like a, this is too big and too unpredictable. Totally. Um, when I went to his store, I'm like, you and your wife work, you take turns. And you got like one or two employees and you've been doing this for when I met him, uh, he's, he bought the business in 1990. So he wasn't the founder, but he bought the business in 1990. Mm -hmm. And then I met him in 2007. So he'd been operating with his wife for 17 years. Wow. So I was, nobody knew the business better than him because he was the only one doing that at the time. Right. Yeah. And so, um, that's when I was like, you got to teach me this. I was like, I'll come work for you for free. You teach me the business and I won't open a store near you. That, that's the gentleman's agreement, right? And yeah, so, that makes sense, yep. And so again, I, I provided him value because I gave him free labor and I, you know, I, I helped him with some marketing and like other things as well. And because he knew my father, he's like, oh, well, I got someone here I could probably trust. And, um, and who doesn't love free labor, especially when you have a low labor model, right? So, <laughs> so in doing that, you know, I, worked, we, I worked for him for about three months. So again, I put in, I put in, that's my skin in the game was in myself. I'm investing three months of my time unpaid to learn a business model that I want to actively pursue. A lot of the guys who ended up building much larger chains around that same self-serve model, um, they were, those founders went into his store, took pictures and they, you know, emulated it and built successful brands. And you know what, that's part of uh, capitalism. That's part of, you know, consumer, it's all fair game. So oh, by no right. means, you know, um, I'm certainly not salty about that. And, and again, even for me, technically, I took another guy's idea and I just kind of turned it into my own. And so, you know, this idea of origination and no pictures, you can't copy me. Like, that's one of the other things I'll say is if it's that weak of a business idea or a brand, like you don't have a brand 
and yeah. it's just tactics that can be done or equipment that can be bought and then they can be, then they deserve to be successful that's the way i look yeah, at it exactly you gotta you gotta build that secret sauce in your brand's dna and if you don't do that then all you have is really just a shop with equipment and food which anybody can kind of do that right and so exactly uh, when I, so when I, when I did that, I put together my business plan, my family invested into me and they said here, um, they gave me seed capital of 600 grand and they said, you can open up a store anywhere. Like there should be enough to open up a, a store anywhere. And at that time I was like, all right, here's my one shot. I was 27 years old. Um, I'm like, I want to build a franchise cause I know how to do that now. Yeah. And that's how I'm going to scale. And, um, I promised Mr. Song I wasn't going to open in, in anywhere near him. So who determines what's too close, right? There, I don't. And, and and on top of that, you know, LA and, and Orange County at the time already had other competitors that had a head start, right? Yeah. So I'm just like, I want first mover advantage, right? And uh, I want to go somewhere where it's open territory. I'm going to be the first one to bring this new concept so I can wow people and then be the pioneer for that model, right? Yeah. And and. And I knew that that would buy me limited, uh, you know, uh, head start, probably like 12 months, right? Yep. So that's why I was like, okay, where can I go that's a bigger market than LA that is, uh, you know, from a retail perspective, like mm -hmm. just that, that, where's the highest level? Like I got one shot. Why am I going to go small? I'm going to go big, that's right? Okay. Put it all in. Put it all in. And I was like, there's only one place I could think of. I mean, even my just as a marketer, I was like, New York City, if you're in retail, like that's the, that's the, that's the, high, that's the Mecca, that's the highest uh, you can go. And even though as an adult, I'd probably only visited twice, in, you know, as an, an adult, <laughs> I didn't really know New York City, to be quite honest, but I knew enough about it, right, through media and everything else yeah. and through reading that I'm like, I think that's where I need to go, right? Uh, so fortunately, I had my aunt and uncle and my cousins uh, who lived in New Jersey, not too far, um, up in Bergen County. And so, I, I went out there and stayed with my aunt and uncle at their home. Mm -hmm. um, my cousin was working at finance in the time. And um, so I was just like, hey, and I'm meeting with brokers and I'm pounding the pavement and walking the streets. I'm like, I got one shot at this. I can't get it wrong. Um, but I know nothing about Manhattan real estate, right? <laughs> Other than it was like super expensive. Of course. And, yep. and so many small businesses fail there, like more so than anywhere else in the world. Why? Because it's super expensive and competitive and you don't really get you know, a second shot, like you kind of get one exactly. shot. If you can't make money, like it's too expensive. Your expenses are high. Everything's high. So I was like, okay, got to get this right. I was walking from, uh, the two data points that I had. This is, this is fun. This just proves to you like how much I knew little I knew about New York city. I was like, okay, wall street, wall mm -hmm. street, like where all the suits and like, you know, in the movies, like yeah. it's busy and there's business people. So let me start there. And that was in downtown. And then I was like, and then Times Square, which we should see every year on TV for the ball drop. And I'm like, that's a lot of land to cover, right? Totally. But I, I was walking for three weeks. I was walking, right? Not taking the subway. Because again, like one, I didn't even know how to take a subway. <laughs> Quite honestly, that was the reason why. But, but to me, I'm like, I want to see the streets. I want to understand these neighborhoods. Because New York City is like all these neighborhoods. And I'll tell you, Jared, the more and more research I was doing, each week I became more and more confused. And then I was just wow. like, I don't understand. And all these brokers who are hitting me up trying to show me spaces. I'm just like, look, I don't really trust you guys. You're out to get your commission, which I get it, that's your job. I got one shot at this and I don't know like what makes one better than another. Like I don't know about what makes one location better than another. And it wasn't until the broker who I worked with, um, he asked me the million dollar question and how ironic is it? Like he asked me a marketing question. He's like, who are you looking for? Like when you're going to all these areas, like who's yeah. your customer? And I was like, oh my goodness, New York City like literally made me go crazy because here I am trying to understand streets and whatnot. And I forget the one basic principle, which is, yeah, who's your customer? And 
for me, having worked at America's Cup Yogurt, I'm like, I want that young uh, millennial female. Like that's who I see as the biggest influencer, both mm -hmm. in her family and her peer network. And quite frankly, most of dessert, not just frozen yogurt, but most of yeah. dessert, it's uh, it skews heavily female. That's yeah. the constituent, that's the buyer. And so to me, I'm like, I'm looking for like the 18 to 34 year old female. Like that's my sweet spot. And he's like, well, if you want the 18 year old female, go by NYU. And I'm like, oh, I heard of NYU. Yeah, let's go visit yeah. the campus. Again, only to realize, well, the buildings, it's not really like a traditional campus. And I'm like, okay. So I forgot everything that I, I looked at every week. And I just said, okay, I'm going to put my marketing hat back on. And I said, all right, um, where are the biggest freshman dorms? Right. Because that's where every year they're replenishing me new customers who, if they fall in love with what I build, I'm going to have loyal customers for four years and they're going to keep bringing me new ones. So I'm like, you know, it's like a feeding cycle. I was like, I think that's a good strategy. And he's like, well, the biggest freshman dorms are in East Village. And he goes, but I'm telling you, you do not want to open over there. And I was like, you just told me that's my answer. Like you walked me through this whole exercise and now you're telling me, not to, I go, we need to look over there, show me the dorm. And so it was like on the corner of 10th street and third Avenue um, is like one of the largest freshman dormitories. And then, so we did a four block walking radius around there. Mm -hmm. And during that time I saw like 10 frozen dessert shops. And so he was just like, look kid, people a kid. He's like, look kid. Um, he's like, I'm an old, born and raised New York City Jew. He goes, I know. And he goes, and you don't know anything about New York City. <laughs> Your family's money. Don't open here. Right? There's already 10. Don't do it. Let me take you to uh, parts of New York City where there's zero frozen dessert shops in a four block radius. And I said, absolutely not. And then he was just like, what are you talking about? And I said, wow. And I think the first principle here, Jared, is like, again, always looking at the glasses being half full. As an entrepreneur, you have to do that. And because when everyone sees it one way and they see a down, you know, a down market or this isn't good, the person who can see, no, 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 there's something there that nobody else sees that gem. That's what gives them the spark to be able to create something, um, you know, magical. And he was like, why are you not listening to anything I'm saying? No, I am. What you're telling me is that all 10 of these guys are able to operate in this marketplace, pay these rents and, and they're all here. Yeah. Like, that to me means that like, isn't this the biggest pie or the biggest swirl or whatever, like the biggest <laughs> scoop in, in terms of like frozen dessert, like in all of New York City, he goes, probably all of the US. He goes, there's no such thing as 10 frozen dessert shops in a four block radius. And I was like, exactly that. And, and, the, and my demographics that I'm looking for is clearly here because you show me they live here. So to me, the challenge is if I come in and I can beat each one of them and I become number one, I go, just tickle me fancy here. Will New Yorkers say, well, 16 Handles is the best frozen dessert shop if I beat these 10? And he's like, yeah, but how are you going to do that? See, but that's the thing. The how I know how to do. Exactly. The the formula. I, learned, I, I got something here, right? I mm -hmm. go, where? I have no idea, but this, this, is, this is where it is. And to me, the why, which is, again, because if I want to become the best, it's not me saying I'm the best. I'm not going to put out ads saying we're number one. Like, to be number one, it's the, the people say you're number one. Yep, totally. And ultimately, there's a way to uh, justify it also. It's by sales. If you are number one in sales, that means they're voting you as number one with their dollars. So however you want to look at it is you are the most successful in that in that area. And so I said, like, you got to find me a spot here. He begrudgingly you know, showed me some locations. The one I landed on, which is 2nd Avenue between 9th and 10th. Um, mm -hmm. We celebrated our 12th birthday, uh, you know, it's past July. Uh, you know, yeah. that locate. thank you, that location... I looked inside and I was like, huh, I go, you know, a little smaller than what I'd like, but considering the rent in New York City is so expensive, I'll make it work. I'll fit it yep. in here. <laughs> and I said like, oh, and they have like a walk-in freezer built out in the basement. All the electrical upgrades are done. I was like, 
he's just like he didn't want me to take the space and i was like i was like hey what what was this before it closed because it was empty like it was gutted up he goes oh funny you should ask this was a cold stone creamery because you know they only have like 1500 ice cream shops around the world <laughs> yeah they didn't make it here and i was just like and oh. when did they close he's like oh like five months ago and i was like oh so up until five months ago people were walking here expecting to get like customized ice cream i was like all right that's cool and then so he's like once again, he's like, are you not listening to me? I'm, no, I am. I was like, but again, I'm hearing it. I'm listening to you, but I'm hearing it very, you know, I'm, I'm hearing you, but I'm listening to it very differently. Different right? thing, yep. And so, um, so I was like, I'm going to take this spot. And that's what sparked it. And, you know, I opened up that location July 16, 2008. Wow. Um, and uh, it's been a journey ever since. I started franchising in 2010. So about a year and a half after that. Wow. And, um, and this has all been through that organic growth. So that initial 600,000, I spent it all to open up the store. Yeah. Um, my cousin, who I said was working in finance, um, ended up joining me a year later. He was just going to help me out for a few months as he was yeah. transitioning between jobs. Because again, in 2008, 2009 was also a tough time to be tough in finance. Time. So yeah. again, work to my advantage, right? There's some luck that happens there from a timing perspective. If I didn't move to New York and do this in 08, I wouldn't have access to, to my cousin, right? Who yeah. was an investment banker in private equity. He wouldn't what's he going to do helping me with my my little yogurt shop right but because of that that happened and during those months you know he was just like wait i think if we do this together we can really like blow this thing up and i was like and i need your help you know i need your yeah. expertise right i need a, i'm going to need a cfo if i build a franchise and so um so we did it together and what was supposed to be a three-month hey i'm going to help out my older cousin solomon turned into you know he's been with me for him the last 11 years right and wow you know, that, we, made a, we made a career out of this, building this family business. We know we've never had to take on outside capital. We never had to, you know, raise money. Um, and it's all just been, boot, you know, I say that we're a 12 year startup journey that's still bootstrapped. Right. And so, you know what you mean. You know, and, and being in, you know, where even New York city has really seen this, like, you know, Silicon Alley approach of a lot of tech startups, which has been great. I think it's amazing. Um, but, you know, I, I think that sometimes the KPIs are skewed and we were talking about this in yeah. the green room where, um, and by the way, this is not to hate on anybody who is in this type of industry or in this ecosystem, mm -hmm. but it's merely my observation where I think the more important things to focus on are being overlooked for a lot of uh, facade KPIs, right? So yeah, yeah. how much money did I raise? Who did I get as an investor? Hey, those things are all cool, but that doesn't guarantee you any success. That doesn't guarantee you that you're going to create profit, right? Which to me is the definition of business. Totally. Maximize profit, minimize liability. Not how much can you pay to get another customer? Right, because if you want to play that game, then it's whoever has access to the most capital dollars wins. Right, yeah, exactly. like I can do that. I don't even need to be a marketer if I'm just spending to. And so again, I'm I'm I'm, I'm it, it's a jab at that type of a business model, but I don't say it with hate. I say it out of if you want something long term, try to figure out a way to quickly get to profitability. Where then, even when you need to weather the storm, like I've been doing, like a lot of business owners have been doing, I'm not like. I'm not headed for the hills, you know, it's like, hey, I, I can adjust and flex as I need to, which I do. Right. And um, and, you know, yes, now I have SBA loans and stuff. I took PPP money. Like we had to like we had stores that were closed. If I have no income coming in, then, you know, how are we supposed to survive? I didn't have to, I didn't have to lay off any of my employees and my staff. So the things that I'm really proud of is I didn't I didn't I didn't make my employees take a pay cut. I didn't have to fire or lay them off. And if and, and I think that that's being rewarded in spades. We're now operating remotely work from home. But they realize that I have their back, right? And because that's, that's the thing to do. And so, to me, I think I'm getting a lot more out of them in terms of their commitment and their their output of work, even though I'm not seeing them in person and we're not interacting. 
And again, I think that's just a testament to whether it's to your employees, to your customers, like if you do them right and you have a real relationship, they'll know if that's an authentic relationship or if it's just a transaction, right? Exactly. And I think that goes with the customer or goes with sales in general, just being a business owner, right? And like mm-hmm. buying in to that, right? And I'm curious to know from you, like there's so many questions we can go with this, but you know, the pandemic has shifted the way consumers behave and the way they purchase, right? So what are some ways that you've adapted? And then what are some things that you were doing prior to the pandemic to help you succeed and get through these times? Sure, great question. Um, Specifically in my industry, I mean, you read in the news on Eater or any of these publications, just another restaurant chain declaring Chapter 11. Exactly. And, you know, Even retail too, with Century yeah, 21. Exactly, exactly. So just retailers in general, right? Because when you have brick and mortar stores, a lot of overhead, big, yeah. big rents, um, big utility payments, big insurance payments, um, a lot of payroll. And when you're not able to operate at full force with, again, a city that used to swallow up to up to 10 million people Monday through Friday, yeah. And now less than 10% of the workforce is back working in Manhattan, meaning everyone in the tri-state that used to come in and work in these big offices, they're all working from home. And yeah. um, so when that's happening, it's creating this like big squeeze. So for us, I mean, no different. We had the biggest, uh, you know, the biggest, I would say, comp store sales difference in our Manhattan stores just because we have fewer, fewer people there, right? Yeah. The Bourbon stores, some of them, I mean, we had two stores in August. They actually comped up from last year's August. So you know, wow. shout out to them. Like, you know, they're yeah. just, they're just, they're, they're on it. They're on fire. But um, overall for us, I mean, we're down um, just like most retailers are, but I think what we've been fortunate is again, for me, um, and we were sharing this as well. Like I'm always very curious and and going to double down and, and take the bets on where my co- uh, customers, how they're communicating, where they're communicating, whatever platform that is, whatever medium it is. And so, you know, in 2008, that was really the start of when businesses were trying to figure out how do we use Facebook? How do we use Twitter? Like what's yeah. the, I remember getting a call from the head of BizDev, um, Eric, if you're listening, shout out to you, um, <laughs> of Foursquare. And then he's like, hey, congratulations. You're one of the most checked in businesses on our platform in East Village. You know, we want to send you some stuff. And I'm like, what are you trying to sell me? What's Foursquare? What do you mean checked in? Like, what is that? I didn't even know what it was. <laughs> and so... He goes, no, 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 it's a good thing. We wanted to send you a badge, stickers, so when people come in, they can do this. I was like, so what, how, how much is that going to cost me? They're like, no, nothing, nothing. And so, you know, it, it was one of those things where, again, like b- even business owners like me, and I was only like 28 at the time. But again, I missed that wow. social, social media gap where I didn't have it. And so I was learning it. Um, but if had that not been the case, I wouldn't have understood that this is where that younger constituent, that 18 to 34 year old, like that's how they're communicating, right? And so I was like, I got to learn it. I got to not just learn it, but then I have to apply it like really quickly and use that as a way to do what for me, it wasn't to advertise to them. Sure. I'm doing ads now because that's just the scalable ad solution. But back then that's not what it was about. It was about, I need to have these conversations, which even if I'm working seven days a week in the store, I'm maybe talking to like a hundred customers. And that's, and by the way, I'm not having a hundred conversations. A lot of those are just, Hey, hello. You know what I mean? They're not really meaningful conversations. So I don't really know what the customer's thinking. Um, whereas I'm like online, I'm like, here, we can take our time. It can be a lot more, you know, I can talk to like a couple hundred. And I remember shortly after one of the NYU students helped me set up my business Facebook account. They're like, you can do polls. Like, so for instance, like we know you change out the flavors in your store. Like, it would be so cool if we could vote like which one we want before you do it. And I'm like, how do you do that? She's like, oh, you use this polling feature. I was like, awesome. That's how I used to do wow. flavor changes. So it'd be like, cool. Wow. Uh, and I'll, I'll make an announcement at that time, probably like 300 followers, which were probably all NYU students. And I'd be like, hey, for Tuesday at two o'clock, I'm going to do a flavor change. Do you want to see this one or this one? And then, you know, you'd see the thing. 
imagine if you're one of the 40 people that voted and then it's like, oh, congratulations, we're going to launch whatever, let's call it strawberry. You're yeah. going to feel like the, the, this business just did exactly what I wanted them to do for I'm, me. It feels I'm connected. I'm it, connected. Feels, I'm connected. It, it feels personalized, right? Like yeah. you, you don't get to tell like Ralph Lauren or Calvin Klein, like, hey, can you design jeans like this? Like they're like, yeah, I mean, you can, you can ask, but the reality yeah. is you're probably not going to get, you know, so, so in this case, again, that that relationship between me trying to become a brand and the customer was not just, oh, I make delicious flavors, which we do, but it was very much those types of touch points, which, again, if I had not adapted to that platform and learned it from them, um, you know, they wouldn't have, I wouldn't have known. And so it was just the evolution was a lot of those things. I say all this, it's a long winded way of saying it, but again, technology, specific digital technology and digital platforms Mm -hmm. has been something that I realized is not going to change or slow down. It's only going to speed up and get faster. So with every platform that's out there, we've always tried to, you know, kind of utilize it like in a way where it's yeah. like, okay, like let's use it as another tool. Um, two years ago, we started our digital uh, roadmap to really transform offline or uh, uh, what's off-premise ordering, right? So like online yeah. ordering. And, you know, while we had a mobile app, um, it was very limited in that you could pay, but you couldn't, uh, you couldn't order. Right. And so, mm. um, you know, it was great for loyalty program. It was great for scanning exactly. the day. And I think that it was, it was good that we did that. We were an early adopter of that technology as well, but I was like, but that's not enough. People now don't want to leave this. Like this is everything, right? Like I'm on a desktop right now talking to you. Um, but this is very much when it's work, whereas, yeah. you know, this I carry around and it's like essentially yeah. a smaller version of this, like everywhere. Right. And, so with that, I was like, okay, like we got to be on there. And I get it. It's tough to get people to download an app, but people who love our brand, they will download the app because they, it's easier for them to connect with us. Right. Exactly. And so that's why I was like, let's, let's start with that. It's not about like, I don't need to be the number one most downloaded app on, you know, the Google play store or Apple, but it's how do we get closer to those people that want to get closer to us? Those are the people that are, are going to want to do it. Yeah. And so in doing that, and now we're unlocking something that's going to be what an, an added convenience for them. Right. One of the challenges about my business in particular is that we're, a, you know, for those who don't know, we're a pay by weight. So you come in, draw your soft serve, add your toppings, put it on the scale and you pay however much it weighs. It's a pay by weight system. So meaning our in-store uh, level data can only tell me, even if you have our app, how much you buy and how often, right? So frequency and, and, and yeah. sales, like that's all I know. I don't know if you're vegan. I don't know if you're low, low fat. I don't know. If, like, I don't know what you exactly. like, because right? I don't know what you're buying. Imagine trying to run a retail operation where I have 16 flavors, 50 toppings. It's like trillions of permutations. And I don't know what you're actually getting. That's actually kind of crazy. Like as a marketer and as somebody who, you know, uh, looks at data, like that's actually like, why would you run a business like that? <laughs> um, it, it seems counterintuitive, but what online has allowed us to do. And by the way, we've been doing delivery for six years now. So by no means are we a stranger to this. And I think that again was a testament to, wait, how do you, first of all, how do you even deliver soft serve? Doesn't it melt? Like people still don't understand. Most people I talk to that don't know or haven't experienced our delivery platforms are like, does that even work? Like meaning they don't trust it. Like it's, 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 it's a weird concept to them. Oh, right. Yeah. And you know, whereas if I told you I have, and you're interviewing a, a pizza concept, and I said, like, I did delivery. You'd be like, duh, like, why would you not? Like, of course you have to do delivery. That's expected, right? But I'm in a business and in each business where it's it's actually the opposite. It's not, it's unexpected. It's like, whoa, really? Like, you can deliver that? And it's like, yes, we've been doing it for six years. So anybody wants to try it, you can go, to, you can go to our website and, and order. It would be fine. It won't melt. Um, <laughs> unless the delivery driver messes it up. But that's that's out of our hands. Um, but, you know, it's, 
it's one of those things where in perfecting the operating model, we needed to catch up with the digital platform to then make it easy for the customer. You look, we've read it on the news, even if you're not in restaurants, but you hear this thing about like Grubhub and Seamless yeah. and DoorDash and how like, you know, even uh, Cuomo had to mandate, like they had to limit their fees. Why? Because restaurants yeah. were getting crushed because they're taking a bigger chunk of the change, right? Like operators are working their tails off to make a small profit margin. And, you know, these third-party aggregators who don't own anything other than the customer data um, were, you know, really, uh, you know, like I'm, I'm obviously on the restaurant tour side. So yeah. you know, like, it's not fair. Like we are working our butts off. We're employing the people, we're making the product, but because you have this website that people are buying it from, you make more off of our orders than we do. Like it just didn't make sense. Didn't make sense right? yeah. And so, and that's, that was really, but in having seen that over the years, I was like, wait, but our online sales, right. Our orders uh, for delivery are only going up year over year. So I'm like, at some point, this is really going to flip itself on its head. Like it's going to be like yeah. the real estate crash in 2008. I was like, how are all these homes getting refinanced with what money? I was like, it was like that. I was like, this is not going to make sense if these third-party aggregators are now the source of all the orders. Cause now it just means that our operating costs like just went up like so much. Right. right? Yeah. Uh, and so I was like, so that's not going to work. So we need to start owning this. And the other reason why I wanted to own the data was because again, we have this unfair advantage where, I don't know what you're buying, but if you buy online, you have to tell me what flavor, what topping and how many that you're getting. Yeah. So now what that allows me to do is I can build, slowly start building a database yeah. um, to understand who you are. And that way, you, you know, these customers now are not just dollar figures of, well, he spends 12 bucks a month with us. It's, ah, Jarrett likes this, this, and this. Yeah. And look, and he's at, and now what I can do is, and I can send you personalized marketing that is going to relate to you, right? And if I find out, for instance, in a household, which is very common, there's somebody who's always ordering our sorbet or our vegan, like oat milk flavor. I'm like, that's a non-dairy customer. If I'm going to market them the same way that I've been doing all these years, which is just like, hey, we got this new milk chocolate flavor. First of all, not only is it not um, applicable, it could actually be offensive, right? To Absolutely. Someone may be vegan. You start throwing them dairy advertisements. They're going to be like, what the, like yeah. why would you do that? Right? You so, use a perfect example um, that Nike analogy you used. Right. We was like, uh, if Nike, you know, if starts ad advertising like skirts or something like that, or like, you know, boots or something like you're like, okay. It, it, yeah, like, why is it to me? Yeah. yeah. It, it can actually come across as offensive and spammy, where again, it, even if it's a brand that I like and, and love, let's say, mm -hmm. it's like, that actually hurts. I, th I, thought, I thought you knew me. Yeah, right? exactly. I mean, I've been so loyal. I thought you knew me. Like, how, how are you going to do me like this? Right. I mean, that's what it feels like. Totally. And so now, what that's what online ordering has been able to do. So with our tech stack, uh, we work with a great company. It's a startup called Lunchbox. And um, at the beginning of the year, we started doing our own native ordering through our website through that platform. So they powered it through our website. Mm -hmm. So now the orders come to us. Um, and then just uh, a month ago, uh, we launched our app, our mobile app with them. And now those orders can be uh, placed directly on the app, whether it's for delivery or for um, order ahead and pick up, right? Which, you know, Bopis, right? Buy online, pick up yeah. in store. Like, yeah, we have that as well, because especially like, uh, let's say some of our suburban markets, maybe they don't want delivery or it's not as uh, uh, adopted, but being able to order ahead and do and curbside. So during COVID, curbside became yeah. a big thing, Huge. Huge. Something, that, something that we never even really did before. But we had the tools in place to allow us to do it. And that's where, again, like, had we not thought ahead and looked at that and, you know, had I not seen that, hey, in the future, if we don't have these things, it's going to be tough versus and i'll say it a lot of my competitors didn't have that and they got caught with their pants down when COVID hit and their stores had to be shut down because they're like we got to start signing up for again they're now going to third party 
So they're just starting the process yeah. with like the broken end game, right? Yeah. And with me, I was like, I saw that years ahead and I started building a pathway towards success, which is, by the way, I don't not believe in those platforms. That's like saying I'm anti-Amazon, anti-Google. Exactly. I mean, that's still where you're gonna be certain. That's still from a discovery standpoint, better shot of being discovered. It's just that if that's your only kind of like a, a lead gen or, or lead flow, yeah. like that you're screwed, like they own, they own it. Right. And so to me, I needed another pipeline where I can own that direct relationship with my customers. And for me, how I'm going to wane people off of that is the loyalty piece is only baked into our own platforms, our own channels. Mm, you can't get sense. loyalty points through seamless. I'm sorry. Right. Yeah. Um, not for 16 handles, at least. So if you don't want to give up that free Froyo and those $5 credits, like you got to do it through our ecosystem. And okay. now it becomes what an omni-channel retail environment. So here I am, and if you would have told me this in 2008, that Solomon, you're going to be the first one in Frozen Dessert to build an omni-channel retail experience, I wouldn't even know what that meant. I'd be like, what are you talking about? Right? <laughs> I didn't even know what Facebook was. <laughs> so, so, but here I am doing that. And again, it's the commitment to what? Being closely connected to the customer, how they want to communicate. So in this case, if they're at working from home, they don't want to come out, they don't feel safe. I remember in April when we had our monthly webinar with our franchisees, one of the uh, one of the comments was from the franchisee was we're, we're, we're doomed. Our, our, our business is done. And I was like, what are you talking about? We're self-serve. We got to touch handles and spoons like that. People aren't trying to do that. And I'm like, correct. They're not trying to do that. We got to figure out a way to make them feel comfortable and, and, and safe. But uh -huh. wow, you're going to throw in the towel right now. Like we're just, just cause of this. And, um, you know, happy to say that really through the efforts of my franchisees, we learned as they were in their marketplaces, cause we're in multiple States and, you know, not even by state, but by like region and cities, like rules were, were, were being different. Yeah. And so as that would happen and our operators were in store, listening to the guests, putting signs, so, social distancing, you know, pro providing them gloves to like we adapted. Right. And again, yeah. the customer then did what they felt safe. And as I soon as they started feeling safer and they appreciate it, then the loyalty comes back. Right. But just in case some people don't want to do that, like my wife isn't cool with that. Like she, she's <laughs> a germaphobe. Here's the convenience. Like, Hey, you can get us through the app. You can get us online. We'll deliver. If you want to come, we'll bring it curbside. If you don't even want curbside, you want a delivery driver to bring it and drop it in front of your door, we can do that. Like to me, give them every opportunity to engage with you um, instead of having these excuses or trying to figure out like why they're not going down the same road that they've been doing for the last 12 years. Because that was 12 years ago and there was no COVID and there was no online ordering like, you know, the way it is today. And so for us, we've been fortunate and, um, you know, and some of my franchisees even, you know, kind of you know, uh, gave me some, uh, you know, gave me, gave me a tough time. Cause like, why are we investing all of our resources into this? Right. Yeah. And like, and you know, I'm, for instance, I'm in a market where people don't even really use like, you know, uh, Uber eats or grab I'm like, well, after COVID, I'm like, I'm sure everybody's probably tried it. Everyone. Yeah. But you know, that's, I think part of the challenge of being, um, an entrepreneur that, you know, somewhat of a visionary when you're talking about looking ahead into the future. Um, but, to me, like that's just going to be exacerbated because technology just allows us to do so many more things so much faster with greater accuracy and less work Yeah. Um, that if you don't adopt that into whatever business you're doing, like you can't think you can go back doing business the way that it worked in 1990 and, and think that everything's going to be successful now. Not to say that like nothing from back then works, but like your business has to be built on the foundations and the tools that are giving everybody else a leg up today. Right. And absolutely. That's why like I don't. I don't tend to fall in love with any particular platform, whether it's social media, whether it's digital. Mm -hmm. um, you know, for me, again, it was like, well, if I'm not going to convince someone or someone doesn't want to, for whatever reason, download another app on their phone, I can respect that. Some people just don't like to download apps. Doesn't mean they don't like you. Doesn't mean they don't want the benefit of being able to do all that. 
but they're cool with going online. Great. So we built the website first. We did the app second and, yeah. um, and you can do it either way. You know, it's like, it's up to you. Like for us, it's like, you know, um, we're, we're, we're about self-serve and personalization. We don't tell you what to eat, how much to eat. You know, we don't tell you to be vegan, not vegan. We just give you all the tools and you do you. Right. And I think, so in terms of, again, like how does that digital omni-channel experience look? Well, again, the benefit for us is we now get data that can help us better serve you through personalized messaging um, and having that dialogue like I did the first time when it was Facebook and I was able yeah. to communicate directly with my guests. This gives us some of that now um, instead of just general approach to here's our monthly flavor. Hopefully you like it. Like, yeah, exactly. That's like, that's like this type of marketing, right? Yeah. right. <laughs> it's like if I can now create tags and segment you and you're like, oh, wait, you're a non-dairy customer. Cool. We're going to make sure that the only things that you're going to see are going to be you know, geared towards what you like and what you want. You know, what we call not dietary restrictions, but dietary celebrations, right? Because yeah. it's different. And people's journeys are, are, are very different. You know, like, even for me, like I was hardcore on the keto diet last year, right? And yeah. so it's like, I couldn't even eat my own product other than for sampling and improving flavors. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, people are going to go through whatever life's journey, you know, and so for us, we just want to be relevant um, and stay along with that ride by doing what? So even from a product development standpoint, having that, right? Like we launched last year, a cashew milk based soft serve product, right? And so all mm -hmm. of our new flavors didn't mean we abandoned dairy but we added more of, of this because we yeah. saw that people wanted more variety and it, it also became more inclusive this way. And so the inclusivity is what really creates, again, I think a brand ecosystem, right? And even for a small business like us, like we're, we're certainly no giant. Um, I, I always like to think we're just a bigger small business, right? We have a lot more small business owners now on our team, but we're still very much like very scrappy and think that way. Um, I don't, I never want to think that we have more resources and we can just like buy our way towards success. Right. Yeah. Um, for me, it's no, like we got to continue like rolling up our sleeves and thinking like, what is, so if this answers today and next year, what do we see in the forefront of like, you know, three to five years from now? Mm -hmm. And what can we start doing today to build towards that? Cause again, companies that unfortunately, and, and I have a lot of friends in the, in the restaurant industry in New yeah. York city. And, um, unfortunately a lot of them had to close down and yeah, he was a COO of a, uh, of, of a famous one and he's like we're gonna go bankrupt and um he goes wow. and so not only that but he goes i'm out of a job <laughs> like you know and i'm just like you know it's sad. it's sad it's sad yeah. um but unfortunately what i've seen for a lot of them is that they didn't build in a digital roadmap towards success because they were so used to hey we've been operating our restaurants like this for the last 25 years exactly our owner doesn't believe in apps and ordering on like that's and so it's like well see that's my point is once you stop right? And you stop evolving, you stop adapting, then what you're actually doing is saying that like, hey, customer, like, screw you, you're yeah. going to do it my way. And that's it. But then when your way gets flipped upside down, like with COVID and the government shuts you down, like there's rules that are outside of your control. So you, true. You, you're, you're going to a battle without any weapons. And you're just like, oh, my goodness, like, I just can't be it's not about me being strong. It's like, I need tools to be able to fight. And I have. Yeah. Right? So um, that's where again, I think aligning and and the other thing about technology is because it's so scalable is it doesn't mean that if you don't have a ton of resources financially that you can't do it, you know, or if, or hey, I don't know it, like, I don't understand how all that stuff works. There are tons of, um, you know, reps and people and interns. Like, there's just so many, it's so easy to say no, but it's actually very easy to say yes and implement it because the tools are all there and people are there. Um, I, the think, I think most businesses choose not to look at it that way. Right. Because mm -hmm. who doesn't use social media in this time? Right. And like you said, the way that you look at it is completely different because you look at it as a conversation between you and your customer. And that's like the way that you've adapted. Like, like you said, you was on Facebook. You like my audience is 
NYU freshmen, right? And then it could rotate, right? So how do I get in front of those people? They're on Facebook. They're talking to other people. They're on MySpace at that time, right? All those other things, right? Now yeah. you're on TikTok. So, you know, things like that that you've adapted to and you made sure that you prepared yourself. And some of the main takeaways I've gotten is just, you know, mindset, right? You have always think of the glass half full, right? What opportunities could you think about a situation? Um, you be scrappy, right? Be able to take risk in terms of like, you, you work for three months, you know, without any pay, right? It, some people would be like, the hell, I don't even know if I'm gonna open this store in six months, right? But right. You, like, let's go with it. And you've learned that and you applied that to your business. And then like, just to even come to New York City on your own, with, you know, with the capital and to say, hey, look, I'm just gonna throw it all on, on this because this is what I believe in and to see what it's changed, transformed into today. Like, it, it's so inspiring, man. And I really, really appreciate you like sharing your story and, and its insights. And I'll, I'll, I know we'll definitely be in touch. I'm hoping this interview gets me a free fro-yo with the family. Gotta <laughs> 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 got to make the plug. So. Yeah, 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 yeah. Hey, download the app. I'll, I'll, send, you, I'll send you the code. I'll, yeah. I'll please do it. I will, I will do it, man. I think Wifey already has it, man. But I just want to say, you know, thank you, Solomon. Like, this is so much. I don't want to take too much of your time. I didn't realize it was past two, but um, you know, thank you. I'm inspired, and I would love to stay in touch with you over the time, and maybe we'll do this again. Um, for all the listeners out there, thank you for you know staying with us. We're in episode 17. Um, you see our guests, our interviews are getting much better, and you know, I'm so happy with all the support, man. We wouldn't do this without you guys. So thank you again. Look forward to seeing you next week. And, and Solomon, thank you again, brother. It's been an absolute pleasure. Yeah, thanks for having me. This was great, and uh, yeah, like I hope I could add value to to somebody who listened. Um, and I'm not going to say good luck, but best wishes with this podcast because I only think it's going to continue growing. Um, you're doing you have, a, you have a great platform, so uh, keep it up. Thanks Thank for having you. me. It means a lot, man. Thank you again, man. I'll talk to you soon. Sounds good. All right, take care. Take care. Bye, guys.